amen. As we're gonna continue this morning as we have been in worship with Jesus being at the center of what we're talking about. And I wanna talk today about both Jesus coming into the city. You know, we celebrate historically this being Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, coming in, riding on a donkey, coming in as this king of peace, coming, bringing a new kingdom, bringing a new way of life, bringing so much, bringing everything. It's, this is the, the beginning of the most historic week in history. It's called the Holy Week. It, 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 we recognize it or acknowledge it this Sunday being Palm Sunday and the next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And we kind of have these, these two pinnacles of Jesus coming into the city, being acknowledged as king, and the next Sunday, him being resurrected and him purchasing our new life and purchasing our salvation and having victory over Satan and, and everything that Jesus did. And we have these two high points. We have a high point this Sunday and a high point next Sunday. And today, I want to talk about the in-between. The in-between as Jesus is coming into the city and people are laying down palms and celebrating and yelling Hosanna. And then as Jesus next Sunday we celebrate has been resurrected, what happens in that in-between time? There's a lot that happens in that in-between time, so much that 25% of the gospels are dedicated just to this week. So you could imagine in, as you're reading your, your, your Bible, as you're reading the gospels this week, you have a lot to pick from in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have a lot to pick from if you're reading and, and tracking this time in history. So I just want to pull out three thoughts from this in-between time, three images of Jesus in this in-between time that I pray will become um, things that help bring new life to us, that help bring set us free in new ways, that help us love Jesus in new ways, that help us follow Jesus in new ways. There's so much in Jesus's speaking and talking that is invitation-based. He's inviting, he's inviting. His whole ministry was about going from place to place and inviting people into a new kingdom, inviting people into a relationship with him. And so I wanna talk today about that, living in the in-between. And what did Jesus do? in this in-between. In this in-between, this triumphant arrival and this triumphant resurrection, these mountaintop experiences, these triumphs, I, I don't know about you, but that's where I like to live. <laughs> I like to live in the triumphs. I like to live in the victories. I like to live in the wins. Uh, I, and, and everything else is, ah, man, how do we get back to the win? How do we get back to that triumphant place? Um, I think of a sports metaphor. There's a famous football coach who said, it's not the will to win that matters. Everyone has that. We all have that. We all want to win. It's the will to prepare to win that matters. And Jesus, interestingly enough, in John, when he's describing this week, he's describing these eight days of time, he describes them in a way 
that are more like childbirth is in his explanation. More a time of, of, of challenge and difficulty and labor from going from one place of triumph to the next. He takes, he takes these two visions and these two pictures. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, and I just want to read that and capture some of, of what the writer of the Hebrews says about Jesus. It says, uh, and he's reminding us, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And this, and this is where I want to go with this passage. It says this, for the joy set before him, for the mountaintop set before him, for the triumph set before him, he endures the cross, scorning its shame, and sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So today, that's what I want us to do. I want us to consider him, consider Jesus, consider what, was, uh, what he endured, what he walked through. Because we, we see the mountaintops differently when we understand the labor and the birth pains and the valley. We understand the mountaintops. We understand what he does when we consider that. We can learn how Jesus lived during this week. And we can be encouraged and we can look at our own faith, our own journey of perseverance and endurance as we look at Jesus. So as Jesus heads into Jerusalem on this historic day, he's arriving as this king of peace. The world is going to be changed forever. And I want us to consider three aspects of Jesus's journey in this in-between time. I almost named this the title of the message, but I want us to consider his sorrow, his anger, and his hunger. I want us to think about those three aspects of what Jesus experiences, sorrow, anger, and hunger. If you look at the book of Matthew, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they all record this, and they have different um, emphasis and they have different subtleties and you get some part in in some stories and other parts in other stories but Matthew records three things in a row he records Jesus's entry he records uh, his cleansing of the temple and he records his cursing of the fig tree that's Matthew's order Mark flips it a little bit and Luke flips it a little bit Um, but he he records those three things as things that immediately happen as he enters and so I want to look at these because as Luke records, as he enters, he has this deep moment of sorrow. And as he goes and he moves into the temple and he cleanses the temple, he has this anger, this this righteous anger over what he sees in the temple. And then as he comes to the fig tree that next day, he has this hunger. It says that Jesus is hungry. So I want to look at these three aspects of Jesus and how these things mark him, not just at the beginning of this story as he's coming to Jerusalem, but throughout the week, this sorrow, this anger, and this hunger. So let's start with the entrance. In the book of Luke, as Jesus is coming in, the people are shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then Luke records it this way in verse 41. It says, 
as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Luke's the only one who records it, this part of it. This triumphant entry as he comes in and as he sees the city, he weeps over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Man, he's, he's broken. He's broken. He's coming in in this triumphant way, and yet he recognizes that the people of Jerusalem are not going to receive him the way he's hoping, that they would recognize what would bring them peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem, hem you in on every side. He's prophesying. He's seeing in the future what's going to happen. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Boy, it's, it's this triumph and it's this weeping at the same exact time. He's weeping. As the week unfolds, as you continue to read in the Gospels, this holy week unfolds, we hear Jesus tell more stories and parables. And we read about additional areas of sorrow that may have marked Jesus's life that week. And I'd like to review these three areas of sorrow that Jesus may have experienced. The first one is Jesus being rejected by his own people and by this city that he loves. He's supposed to be coming to the city as the son of David, sitting on David's throne, coming in in this way. And he experiences this rejection. It says in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is experiencing this week. He's experiencing this rejection. He's come as the savior of the world. He's come to fulfill the prophecies. He is the Messiah and he's not recognized and he's rejected. Jesus goes on in this Holy Week and each of the gospels, uh, I think except John, records him telling many parables about the father setting up a vineyard and, and sending the son and the son is rejected. So Jesus has on his mind and has this awareness and has this sorrow related to rejection. He also is aware that the city is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed. He has all this awareness. This is some of where his sorrow is coming from. The second area I would like to suggest regarding sorrow that he would experience this week is his understanding of his personal suffering, the suffering that he's going to go through. He understands that he's going to be lifted up on a cross. He understands that he's going to be a sacrifice. He has an awareness as he walks through this week of personal suffering, physical, emotional, mental suffering that he's going to endure. He's also aware that he's going to be betrayed by a very close friend that he traveled with for many years. He's going to be denied by a very close friend. And then he even prophesies, all of you, my followers, you're just going to scatter when they, 
when, that, when this happens, when this week goes down, you guys are going to abandon me. He knows this. He speaks this. So he's walking in this personal sorrow, in this sorrow of relationship. And the third area, so we've talked about his rejection. We've talked about his suffering. And the third, and I don't know for you, but this is, this is something when you love someone so much, you don't want to see other people suffer on your behalf. And Jesus spends almost five chapters in the book of John recording and helping and working with his disciples and speaking with his disciples, trying to get them prepared and assured for what's going to go down. Jesus is concerned about the disappointment that his disciples are going to experience, the grief his disciples are going to experience, the fear, the danger, the realization that everything is going to be different now. And he's aware of that. He's so aware of what he's about to walk through and how it's going to impact the people closest to him. So aware that he spends hours upon hours upon hours trying to prepare them. So what does Jesus do? How does he walk in this suffering? I don't know about you, but it's this week of him walking through this. He's, there's not an antidote for this. There's not a getting over this. There's this sorrow that he's walking in to fulfill this incredible kingdom, to do what only he can do, to bring life only the way that he can bring it, to bring victory over the enemy. But he's walking in this rejection and this suffering and knowing the pain that's going to be caused to his loved ones. So what does he do? I love reading some of the scriptures in light of that question. The first thing that he does is he, he focuses it says in Hebrews, we already read it, for the joy set before him. He must have had, in the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of this pain, an unwavering focus of fixing his eyes, of focusing his eyes on what he was going to accomplish. He was going to accomplish it for people that would reject him. He was going to accomplish it for people that were going to put him on the cross. He was going to accomplish it but he was fixing his eyes. He remembered his calling. He remembered that he was to be glorifying the Father. He remembered that he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He remembered that's what he was called to do. How else could he endure this suffering? Regardless of the rejection and the personal suffering, sometimes, I don't know about you, but we have to stand alone in the middle of rejection, in the middle of personal pain, and trust the Lord. We'll read it in a minute, but I want to say it again. He says, like a seed falling into the ground, it must die in order for it to bear fruit. That's a scripture he quotes in this time. He's fixated on the idea that if he falls into the ground and dies, there's going to be life that's going to come. The second thing he has is he has an eternal perspective. And in his interactions throughout the week, he's talking to people and they're like, man, look at how great this temple is. And he's like, yeah, in 40 years, this isn't even going to be here. What you hold up as the most important thing now is going to crumble. 
He's speaking about an eternal perspective. He's seeing beyond the experiences of his time. He's seeing beyond the religion of the day. He's seeing beyond the change, and he has an eternal perspective, something that's going to last longer than 40 years. He's not putting his faith in their traditions and the way things have always been. He has an eternal perspective. So he has focus. He has an eternal perspective. And then the last one I want to suggest to you that he does and how he walks in this sorrow is he spends lots of time with his disciples, bringing them comfort, bringing them preparation, and bringing them assurance. He just spends so much time with them. He says, I will not leave you alone. It's good that I go so the Holy Spirit can come. I go to prepare a place for you. I give you my peace. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's chapter and verse after chapter and verse where he looks beyond himself and he looks beyond his own rejection and his own suffering and his own pain. And he goes, I want to prepare you for what's coming. I want to prepare you for the new life that you're going to have. What a Jesus. What a Jesus. This man of sorrows. This man of sorrows who says, I came to die that I might bring life. I came that I have an eternal. I'm going to go way bigger than you could ever imagine. I'm way bigger than John and uh, the, the two disciples who want to sit on his right and left hand. I'm way bigger than that. I've come to do something eternal. I've come to establish a complete kingdom of heaven that you have no idea about. And I care about you, disciples. I like to think, read these scriptures, and John is the only one who has a bunch of content that I think, I imagine all of these conversations happening at nighttime. And everything in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the daytime activities that are happening in public. And John's writing down what happens when they go back to Bethany at night. And Jesus is assuring them and comforting them. So it says in John 16, 19, in the same time that he's spending time with his disciples, he says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. And that child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. And you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. That's his message to his followers. No one is going to take away your joy. So that's the first question I have for us today as we think about the in-between time. In your life, man, I want to go from high place to high place, but I don't know about you, I go through a lot of sorrow. Do you go through sorrow? Do you go through rejection? Do you go through loss? Do you go through difficulty? Man, how do, how do we walk through that? How do we walk through it? When Jesus is talking about this seed falling into the ground, it says in John uh, 12, he says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Man, in this trouble, 
And in this sorrow and in this, Jesus doesn't lose sight. What do we do with our sorrow? How do we endure through sorrow? The first thing I wanna suggest in sorrow is what Jesus said. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't give life. Man, that's for us having this picture of us surrendering to Jesus, laying down our lives. That picture of us surrendering, just like that seed falling into the ground. And the Lord brings life to us. The Lord is the one who brings life to us. I want to suggest this focus. Jesus said in or that what we read in Hebrews 12, it says to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What do we do in times of deep sorrow? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Having an eternal perspective, recognizing that the Lord is there to bring comfort and bring assurance. I want to say that Jesus, Jesus turns our sorrow into new life. From sorrow comes new life. From Jesus' sorrow and anguish came new life. For us, we have new life that comes out of our sorrow. Brian Zond has this quote. He says, we live in an age where the amount of daily information we receive that should enrage or grieve us far exceeds our capacity to bear it. We receive, the amount of information we receive that should enrage or grieve us far exceeds our capacity to bear it. Only God can bear all the sorrows of the world. We, on the other hand, have to choose what sorrows to bear. This is complicated, but true. So the second thing that Jesus experienced and walked through in this in-between time was anger. So Mark 11 records it this way. On reaching Jerusalem... Go to the next slide. Jesus entered the temple courts. So this is all is happening in this same entrance. Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the breaches, uh, the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he caught them and said, it is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So we see in this next picture of Jesus, in this in-between, we see this anger in Jesus. There were Different scholars talk about why did Jesus do this? And there's different things, but some generally accepted things, a couple of ideas as to why. The first being that that court where they were selling things and where they were exchanging money, that was called the court of the Gentiles. And it was the place in where outsiders were meant to be able to come and pray and worship. That's part of the reason why Mark records, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. And this practice that the, they were doing in the temple was excluding the outsiders. The insiders were taking advantage of all of this area and doing all of their worship and doing all of their stuff. And the Gentiles were being excluded from their court. And Jesus is coming in and saying, this isn't right. This isn't right that our practices are excluding the, the very people that are meant to be included in my place of worship. 
my house of prayer. The second thing is there was, there's generally believed that there was these inflated costs, that the selling that was happening in that place was, was ripping people off, was way more expensive than it ever should have been for these sacrifices. People were being excluded because they couldn't afford to worship. How is it? Jesus is angry. He's coming in and he's saying, you've polluted and perverted and you've excluded. You've polluted and perverted the way we're supposed to worship and the people that are supposed to come and worship. And he wanted to cleanse that. So that's this first picture of Jesus in his angry emotion that week. The second picture of, of his anger is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 23. And he goes through and he has this series of what he are written or down called the seven woes. But there's, he's very much upset by the ways in which the religious leaders of the time are not representing God properly. Luke and Mark record a little bit of this. And I want to read in Luke 20 verse 45, another picture of of Jesus in his anger. He says this, while all the people were listening, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. If you read Matthew 23 and you read the seven woes, you get this, this passion and this anger that Jesus has for how things, how religion has polluted. And Sarah spoke last week about how they elevate their tithing and they minimize their justice, their mercy, and their faithfulness focusing on the minor things and not on the major things, focusing on it being a show and not being authentic. The third picture of where Jesus shows anger is in telling some of his stories and some of his parables. He's upset because the Lord, he, he uses stories like the Lord has prepared a banquet for people to come to and people just don't want to come. People are like, no, nah, I'm not interested. Don't want to come. Or they've sent his son and they won't, They've rejected his son. Three pictures of Jesus being angry. So what does he do with that anger? What, what does he speak about in that anger? What, is, what, what, what action takes place in Jesus' anger in this in-between time? The first thing is that he reestablishes access for everyone to worship. Jesus' anger is not just to be angry and walk away and be anger, but it's anger to reestablish the way worship should be to reestablish the purpose of gathering a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he's elevating the most important things in his, in his message and in his speaking, the treatment of widows, the poor, focus on justice, mercy, and faithfulness, a focus on integrity. You need to do what you say, practice what you preach, not focusing on being seen by others or being popular in the marketplace, he also elevates the idea that we have one master, one father, and one teacher. Stop elevating your teachers and your leaders above the Lord. The Lord is your master, your father, your teacher. 
the rest of us are brothers and sisters. That's our identity. We are brothers and sisters. And then he elevates this. The greatest among us is to be our servant. And this is what the thought I want to leave you with in anger. What does Jesus do in his anger? He sets things right and he calls people to serve. He calls us to serve. Jesus' anger is a call to service, not to self-importance, to the authentic and not to the perverted, shifting from religion to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus' anger was a call to set things right. In Matthew 20, in the same time as there, all of this is happening about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, Jesus calls his disciples together and say, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We talked about sorrow and out of sorrow coming new life. I want to suggest that out of anger, the Lord wants to bring us. He wants, he's calling us to a place of service. He's saying, don't let your anger take you out. We can sometimes in our anger, take our ball and go home. And the Lord says, in our anger, let's set things right. Let's change. Let's do things different. And then let's serve one another. Let's turn this thing upside down and serve. The last one is Jesus's hunger. And I, I will, this will be the, the third that we talk about. And this event I had never thought about before until preparing for this time. It's very interesting. In Matthew 21, 18, um, it says this. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, as I mentioned before, they were in the city, and then at night they'd go out to Bethany, and then they'd go back in the city. It says he was hungry. And I can't remember anywhere else in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus being hungry. Oh, maybe after he was fasting for 40 days, maybe, maybe that was a spot, right? Oh, he's thirsty with the Samaritan woman. All right, there's a few other places. Okay, but he's hungry. And it's, I'm, I'm like, why is this story in here? It's very interesting. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did that fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus said, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Man, why is this is an odd story? This is, I think, the only miracle where Jesus actually um, is destructive in his miracle. Interesting, isn't it? But man, is it really that Jesus was that angry? Like he just is that emotional maybe he was and maybe that's that's why he can relate to us because i get that i get hangry like that and it's just like until i get some food you just don't want to be around me but i i think and and i think what he's representing is this symbolism jesus is going to a tree that looks green that should have fruit on it and there's not any fruit on it it's this metaphor of what religion is like hungry people coming to a tree that looks promising but has no fruit this metaphor of what he sees throughout the week of 
temples and teaching and religion and all of these things, but not bringing true life to people, not being, bringing fruit that lasts. Jesus was hungry for the fruit on that tree. So I was thinking about that idea of Jesus being hungry. Jesus was hungry for that fig tree. And then as you read the stories throughout this holy week, I saw hunger throughout the stories that he told. He told parables about people, and it was oftentimes comparing two types of people, those who were responsive and hungry for God and his kingdom, and those that had the appearance but not the fruit. He tells lots of stories comparing and contrasting. Two sons working in a field, and he says, please go out and work in them. And one son says, yep, I'll go do it, and then doesn't. The other son says, no, I won't do it, but then changes his mind and goes and does it. And in that passage, he's talking about tax collectors and prostitutes who are entering the kingdom ahead of the first son. He talks about a wedding banquet in which he's, the Lord has spread this amazing banquet and people are like uh, ignoring him. They don't want to come. And so the king says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. He's got this feast that he wants for the people. Are you hungry? He tells the parable of the 10 virgins who are waiting, who are longing to see the bridegroom and to see this wedding happen. He talks about the story of the parable of the talents where he's given gifts to people and, and two of them go and, and just walk in faith and risk and they go for it and the other one buries it in the ground. He talks about sheep and goats and the difference between those that walk with him and those that don't, those that serve and love to the least of these. So he's painting these pictures and I would suggest to you that they're hungry pictures. Are you hungry? Are you wholehearted? He's looking for the wholehearted and the hungry. He sits and he looks at the widow and he, this is not telling a story anymore. He just sits at the temple and he's watching people give. And he says this in Luke 21, 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper corns. Truly, I tell you, he said, the poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. How you just get this sense with Jesus. He's looking for the hungry. He's looking for the wholehearted. He's looking The last, so we have the parables and the widow, and then we've talked about the Passover where Jesus says, I've eagerly and earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. Jesus was marked by this hunger, this hunger to, to eat with his disciples, this hunger to see true fruit, not the fruit of religion, this hunger to see people wholeheartedly come to the table that the Lord has prepared. So I want to suggest for us, are we hungry? Are we wholehearted? I think in a lot of ways, this in-between time between these peaks, these amazing things that happen, man, we can get derailed by our sorrow. We can, we can say, man, this sorrow is too much. 
And the Lord says, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus and allow everything to die, and I'm going to bring new life. We can, we can be derailed by our anger, things that are not right. Things need to be set right. Yes, they do. Allow the Lord to change in our hearts. How can we serve? We came to serve and to love. And, hey, and, and you just see the cry of hunger in Jesus' heart that week. Those that hunger and thirst for him will be filled to do the will of the Father, he said to the Samaritan woman. That's his bread. That's what he eats. That's his food, to do the will of the Father. So we're in good company. Are we hungry for the real thing? Jesus is the real thing. He looks at that fig tree, and it's like it's green with no fruit on it. And Jesus is like, come to me. He's the real thing. He's laid a real table for us. Are we dish? Are you disillusioned? I want to suggest this week as we go through this holy week, bring your sorrow to the Lord. Bring your anger to the Lord. Come hungry. Bring your hunger to the Lord. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Consider him who endured so much. Consider him. Consider what he walked through this week was for the joy set before him. It was for you and I. It was for purchasing our salvation. And he's inviting us. He's inviting us. He saw us. He saw us. That's, we're part of that joy that was set before him. He saw victory over Satan. He saw victory over death. He saw victory over sin. He saw all of those things. And he walked through it in this in-between time. The Lord wants to turn your sorrow to life. He wants to turn your anger to service. And he wants to turn your hunger into love, into wholeheartedness. Can we pray together? I want to pray for us that as we reflect on Jesus today, and we reflect upon this king, this king of peace, that we'll see him as someone who's acquainted with our suffering. He's acquainted with our sorrow. He's acquainted with us. And he loves us. Lord, in our sorrow, we lay down our lives and we fix our eyes on you. We fix our eyes on you in the midst of rejection. We fix our eyes on you in the midst of suffering. We fix our eyes on you in the midst of betrayal and denial. We fix our eyes on you as we have to trust you with our friends and family, those that you've given us. We fix our eyes on you. Lord, in our anger, give us hearts to serve. Shift us, Lord, from being like everyone else and all the other leaders of the land that want to lord over. But Lord, you came to serve and to set things right. Lord, show us how to be a people that receive the harvest and receive everyone that you've called into your house. And Lord, in our hunger, 
We desire to pursue you wholeheartedly. Thank you that you satisfy. Your meal satisfies. You give us bread and drink that satisfies forever. Thank you, Jesus, for your example. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what only you could do. Thank you for your invitation. I just want to ask this morning and invite you this morning, if you've never given your life as a follower of Jesus and said, I need Jesus. I need the salvation that Jesus brings. I need the life that Jesus brings. I need the fruit and the meal that Jesus has set before me. Jesus is inviting you today. He's inviting you into new life. He's inviting you into a meal. I just want to ask you and consider, will you, will you receive Jesus' invitation today? We say, yes, Lord. We say, yes, Lord. We say, yes to you, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation you give. We recognize you as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. We recognize you this morning. We say, Jesus, take away the sin of my life. Take away the sin that's in me. Give me new life. I surrender. I can't do this on my own. Jesus, you are our salvation. Today, we come to you, Jesus, as our salvation. Today, we come to you as our life. We praise you for who you are. Amen.